0: The Savior has come to this world, amen? Amen. Jesus is the Son of God in human flesh. He's come to save sinners like you and me. Let's turn in our Bibles to our sermon text, Acts chapter 1. So turning over in your Bible, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then there comes this book called the Acts, uh, in between the gospel stories and the letters, the epistles of the New Testament. So Acts 1, where we left off last Sunday, uh, picking up at verse number 12. Then they, meaning the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Because Jesus told them, don't leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, Judas Iscariot, that is, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, speaking of Judas now, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of the and all his bowels gushed out, And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written, here is Peter, in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place." And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And all of God's people say, Amen. You should have a sermon notes page uh, in the bulletin this morning. If you'd like to take notes. And there's also a little kids' notes page uh, that was on the way in on the table outside. If your kids want to take some notes and answer some questions, uh, that's available as well. Well, have you been in a, in a house as it was being built? I was thinking about that this morning. Uh, back in my day, in the good old days, right, uh, we used to walk through the neighborhoods when a house was being built. Uh, there were no huge developments. There was just a house here and a house there. Uh, and a house was being built, uh, and you could just walk through a building site back in the day. Oh, look at this. Look at this nail gun right here. You know, that's awesome. Uh, you know, you could pick up a two-by-four with nails sticking out of it and have, and have fights with your brothers, you know, back in the good days. You can do that kind of thing. Um, but uh, just think about, you know, walking through a house as it's being built. Uh, before there's a roof, before there's shingles or tiles, uh, before the walls are framed up, before there's any paint on it or stucco as we have it here in SoCal, uh, what has to be built first? Foundation. A foundation, good, foundation. You've got to have a foundation. Why? because there would be no walls standing and there would be no roof upon those walls uh, unless it was all supported by a foundation. The New Testament describes God's kingdom like a house. God's kingdom or his church is described like a house. If you turn quickly to Ephesians chapter 2, you'll just note that, and you'll see there at verse number 11 and following, uh, where the apostle describes the church uh, as a house of God. And, and he says there, uh, just moving down, if you look there uh, in Ephesians chapter number 2, he says, verse 18, for example, it's through him, through Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and so forth. It's a dwelling place by the Spirit. So the New Testament describes the church, the kingdom of God, uh, as a house in which God himself dwells. Uh, as well, he, uh, the New Testament describes us as believers as members of the body of Christ of the household of God in 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, verses 5 through 10 individual Christians believers are described as stones living stones and we become uh, the things that are built up to make the walls of that house and so there's a house uh, inside dwells God's the walls are the people us and inside of it, uh, again, God dwells there with us, and the foundation, of course, is also laid. What's the, new, uh, what's the, the foundation of the church? Christ. Ephesians 2.20 says the foundation is uh, the apostles, right, and the prophets. And who is the chief cornerstone of that foundation? The Lord, the Lord right, Christ himself. So there's a foundation. It's the, the apostles and the prophets, their doctrine, their writings, Uh, The chief cornerstone of that foundation is Christ himself. The walls are us, you and me, and what fills it is the Holy Spirit. One of our hymns says, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with his own precious blood. The kingdom of God, the church of God, the house of God, uh, the dwelling place of God, the temple of God, that's who we are. That's what we are as, as believers And so before the Spirit of God can come and fill the house, the foundation has to first be laid. And as we go through the Acts this morning again, Jesus, by the Spirit, through his apostles, these are the Acts of Jesus, by his Spirit, through his apostles, we saw last Sunday morning. Our story this morning, our text this morning, describes for us a time when God's international kingdom From every tribe and language and people and nation. uh, That kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ that exists throughout the millennia. It's contained in a living room in our story. That's one of the great ironies here. Jesus, in chapter 1, we saw after his resurrection and before his ascension, chapter 1, Uh, the first part that we saw last Sunday. Well, what was Jesus teaching them for, for those 40 days between his resurrection and ascension? Things about the kingdom of God. Who's the king of the kingdom? Our Lord Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord, the risen Lord. How far does his kingdom extend throughout the world? The disciples asked, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were thinking merely in those Old Testament terms, and just that mere geopolitical place of what we call today Israel, the Promised Land. Now Jesus said that the kingdom of God was going to go out. He says, "Go into Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth." And so, God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, that is going to spread throughout the entirety of the world, and it's going to and it's going to go out from that place, and it's still extending out today. Throughout the millennia, the kingdom of God is in a room. They were, up, uh, they were in an upper room. They were on the second story or second floor of a building. And that's where the church was meeting in Jerusalem. The entire kingdom in that one upper room. About 120 people in all. That's about it. From that little room, from that small group, from them we exist today. And there, from that place, Jesus is building his church. I will build my church, he told his disciples, Matthew 16. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The builder of the kingdom of God, the builder of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, the builder of the temple of God, is Christ. It's Christ. We saw that last Sunday as well. It's Christ's kingdom. He sends his disciples. He's doing the work. He's the one building. I will build my church. He's the one who's promised his church to go, uh, as he commanded them to go to Jerusalem. He's promised to them uh, that they are to receive from him the Holy Spirit. He's promised the Spirit. And therefore, in response to that, the church is praying here. And we see this as well. And the Holy Spirit is one who's speaking in the Old Testament Scriptures that Judas was going to apostatize. He was going to reject Christ. And he was going to lead men to him, to arrest him, to crucify him. And therefore, the the Scripture says, the Holy Spirit says, a replacement must be found. We see that in verse 16 here. And we see as well that it is Christ who builds the church because the church is praying to the Lord. And they are reading his words and they are also crying out to God that he would give a replacement for Judas. And so they do this ancient practice of casting lots or drawing straws, as we would say today. As the proverb says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So we've got to grasp this at the outset of the book of Acts, that it is Jesus Christ who is the king of the kingdom, and he's the builder of the church through the power of his Holy Spirit, through the means of his apostles and his, chief, and, and, and his people, the church. Christ is the one who's building. And so as Christ was now building his kingdom or rebuilding his kingdom from uh, the ruins of it from that Old Testament time and now in the story of the Gospels, he's now rebuilding his kingdom. And it's from this little upper room that these disciples gather and the church goes out and the kingdom spreads. So Christ is the one building, but how is the church responding? Jesus is the one who builds the church, but what does the church do in response to that reality? How did they respond here in Acts 1? And what does that teach us about what kind of church we ought to be? What does it mean to be a church that experiences being baptized by the Holy Spirit, like the apostolic church. What were they doing, and what does God call us to be? To be truly spirit-filled as a church this morning. So here in, this, in those ancient days of the, of the early church, the kingdom of God fit into a little upper room. And Christ was promising to build an international kingdom from that little room, through the power of his Holy Spirit and using men, using women like the disciples. So, how the church respond? I want you to see here, as Christ is building the church there, and the church is waiting for him to do so in that upper room. Notice how they respond, first of all, by being devoted to prayer. They're devoted to prayer. Verse 14, especially, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. And as that 120, roughly, were awaiting the gift of Christ sending the Spirit, what were they doing? They're praying. They're praying. Now think, about, uh, think of this. Have you ever asked yourself, and I, know, and I know you have, have you ever asked yourself, well, why pray? My kids have asked me, why pray? Why pray? If God is God." If God is almighty, if God is all knowing, why do we pray who are not almighty, all knowing? We're not God. If God knows everything, if God can do all things, if God is God, why pray? If Jesus Christ really is the one building the church, why pray? If it's the Spirit of God who must come first before anyone does anything, why pray? Why pray? Well, just briefly to mention this. God commands us to pray, doesn't he? All throughout the Bible. Doesn't God command his people to pray? So God commands it. And Jesus Christ, as the raised, glorious king, he commands us to pray. And we are his subjects, we are his servants, we are his children, and so we want to obey him and and listen to him. He commands it. But more importantly, why pray? Is that God not only has ordained in purpose the end, result, and goal of everything, but he's also ordained in purpose the means to get there, the way to get there. Jesus Christ commands us to pray. Why? Because he uses our prayers as the way through which he accomplishes his purpose of building his kingdom on this earth. And so there they are they were all with one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer because they were commanded to pray and because they knew from the scriptures that God uses prayer as a means to an end. And there's two things I want you to see here uh, that we learn about prayer, two things that are essential uh, to true prayer uh, for us here as a congregation. First of all, the church was devoted to prayer. Those disciples were, were devoted to prayer, uh, and they were engaged here in, in unified prayer. Notice, they prayed with one accord, the, the, the story says, the text says. They prayed in a unified way with one accord. Later on in chapter 4, verse 24, uh, Luke uses this very same phrase again of united prayer. The church was united together. And again, in chapter 15, when the disciples and the apostles met uh, to determine the status of Gentiles, non-Jews, in the kingdom, uh, Luke uses this phraseology of of a united decision. The church came to unity. In other words, when we pray our own prayers apart from one another, we sound and I'm going to date myself here, but we sound like an old radio. Do we even have radios anymore? I don't know. We, we have alarm clocks. But if you're in a hotel room and there's an old alarm clock there and you hit the dial and you try to move from station to station, it's just a gobbledygook of mess, isn't it? just a mess of sounds. Nothing is in focus. Nothing is sharp. Nothing is quality. It's just a big mass of sounds. When we pray by ourselves or or on our own, our own prayers, apart from the body of Christ, apart from one another and other people's needs, we sound like an old radio. And we turn the dial, so to speak, and we're all trying to pray, and it's just a big mess of sounds. But when we pray in a very united way, coming together, sharing each other's burdens, praying with purpose... For the coming of the Lord's kingdom, through us, we sound like a station that is in perfect focus and in tune. They devoted themselves to prayer, and they did so with one accord. They were united in their prayer. We must be united in our prayers. Secondly, the church was engaged in unceasing prayer. Unceasing prayer. And again, Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Well, why pray if Jesus said it's going to happen anyway? They were devoting themselves, notice. Unceasingly, devoting themselves. Again, this phraseology is used by Luke throughout throughout his book of Acts. He used the language of devotion or devoting, uh, of the church being devoted to to the apostles' theology, their doctrine, their teaching in Acts 2.42 the Lord's Supper, the fellowship, and the prayers. They were devoted to those things. And again, in chapter 6, verse 4, it describes the church being devoted, or the apostles being devoted to the word of God and prayer. Unceasing, wholehearted, giving oneself over to these things. And so it's a characteristic of a true Christian, It's a characteristic of a true Christian church that it prays, that we, that we pray. We must be unceasing in our prayers. And I want you to notice something even more important here. This infant church in Acts 1 was praying for the spirit that Christ had promised And again, knowing that he had promised the Spirit did not lessen their devotion to praying for the things that Christ called them to pray for, the kingdom, the Spirit, and so forth. It actually increased their devotion. We don't read that Jesus said at his ascension, now wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, pray one time, and it's going to happen in ten more days. No, they, for ten straight days between Ascension and Pentecost, in chapter 2, it's ten days between that white space, they prayed without ceasing. They devoted themselves to prayer. And knowing that Christ was going to ascend and send down the Spirit did not lessen their intensity of prayer. It made it even more so. Because God has not just commanded us to pray, but he says that, the, that prayer is the way through which he does his work. In verse 24, when they are praying for the, for the replacement between these two men, the replacement for Judas Iscariot, notice the prayer. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all. But they're still praying. Does God know everything? Absolutely. Does God know every single nitty-gritty detail of our lives and the lives of every human being that ever has, are, and ever will exist? Is there anything in the entirety of the universe that's outside the will of God? Is there any little nanoparticle, a quark, in the universe that's just out there, just beyond the boundaries of the universe and God's concern? But they still prayed. They still prayed. One old writer said it like this. He described that we should pray to God so often and so shamelessly, his words, not mine, that we would make God ashamed to look us in the face if he didn't answer us. We should pray to God so often and so shamelessly for the needs that we have that it would make God ashamed to look at us in the face if he didn't answer us. Is that our devotion as a church? O U R C. Is that our devotion as a church to, to public prayer here in the Lord's Day, whatever time we gather together? Is that our devotion when we gather together for our various uh, midweek gatherings? Is that our devotion at home? Do we pray like this? That hymn I mentioned earlier goes on to say it like this For her, the church, for her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Do we pray? Are we known for prayer? The church responded to the King Jesus by praying. By praying. Secondly, the church, the kingdom of God, was gathered in. it fit into a little room. Christ had promised to send the Spirit. He was going to send his disciples out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. He was going to build his kingdom upon the, on the face of the earth. And they responded in a second way, one of the char- a second characteristic of, of the church's response to Christ building his kingdom is that they were governed by the word. They were governed by the words, Devoted to prayer and the words, Devoted to prayer and the word. One writer said it like this, when these traits are lacking, when the church is not devoted to the word and prayer, when these traits are lacking, we cannot expect the church to flourish. And the reverse is true. When and where we are devoted to the word of God and prayer, we should expect to see God's spirit poured out upon us. The great English Puritan. He's, got, he's great because he's, he's a subject of my PhD. He's great. John Owen, right? I mean, why else would I study the guy? He was great, right? But John Owen, the great English Puritan, great theologian of the 17th century, said it like this, and this is my paraphrase When we have the Word without the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we dry up. If we have, he says, or when we have the Spirit without the Word, we blow up. <laughs> He says we become, we become like just full of air, and we just explode, you know, enthusiasm, uh, enthusiasm. But when we have the Word and Spirit together, we grow up. We grow up. The Word and Spirit together. When these traits are a focus of ours, we should expect God to pour out His Spirit upon us to grow and to build our faith, to save the lost, to use us in the various parts of life in which we find ourselves every single day, wherever we find ourselves, at work, amongst friends, at school, wherever it is. We should expect, because we are devoted to the word of God, governed by the word of God, and we are devoted to prayer. These are the means that God uses to build the church. If he promises to use these means, word and prayer, and not other means, if we devote ourselves to whatever else it might be, should we expect ourselves to grow? No, we need these. Notice how so Peter stands up. We're told in the upper room, and he addresses the assembled gathering, the congregation. Verse fifteen: Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning the Judas. Who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. As he reads the scriptures of the Old Testament after Jesus instructed him for 40 days after his resurrection. He came to recognize and to realize that God had said throughout the Old Testament. That it was necessary for Judas to turn away from Christ as well as to be replaced. Verse 20. How did Peter know it was God who was speaking when he read those ancient scrolls? How did he hear the voice of God speaking in those ancient scrolls? He heard God because he read them. In other words, you want to hear God? Pick up your Bible. What does God's voice sound like? Read your Bible. That's what it sounds like. And reading the Psalms, like Psalm 69, Psalm 109, that's where those two quotations come from, uh, verse 20, he heard God. And God said that Judas would betray Christ and be replaced. He equates, notice, the scripture, verse 16, with the voice of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke. Do we want to hear a fresh word from God? Read the Bible. Read the Bible. I was asked by somebody recently... What makes your church unique? What's different about your church? Why should I go there? And I said, first and foremost, we self consciously seek as a church to be governed by the Word of God in everything that we believe, in everything that we do as a church. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination but we're zealous for the word because it's the very living and active voice of God to us and to our world. And you see that in Peter here. He's seeking to lead this infant church that's in Jerusalem under the threat of persecution. It wasn't safe to be there, right? This was not a safe space in the upper room. It's the last place you wanted to go. That's why they're in Bethany. That's why they have to go back to Jerusalem, because Jesus said, go. They didn't run. They went into the very mouth of the lion. And Peter says, the word of God is going to lead us and govern us and guide us. And so he applies what the Psalms, what David says. Notice it's David, but it's the Spirit. The Spirit is using David as a prophet to write these Psalms. And they speak of Judas and the necessity of another, a twelfth apostle. And so Peter applies those words in in his context, and he says that another was to take Judas' place, who had accompanied us, notice verse 21, who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went uh, went in and out among us, Uh, beginning from the baptism of John, that's like the very earliest chapters of the Gospels when Jesus was baptized by John, Until the day when he was taken up from us. That's the ascension. That's Acts 1, the very beginning. That's the end of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. So, from Jesus' baptism all the way until the ascension, we have to find someone who's been with us that entire time to be with us witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. That's what Peter draws in the scriptures. Why was there a need for the church to have 12 apostles? I mean, Jesus gave 12 apostles, but one of them apostatized. One of them rejected the faith. One of them uh, became a traitor. One of them uh, 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 led them to arrest Jesus, and he took his money, and eventually he died, we see. So why was there a need for the church to have 12 apostles? Because the church, the, the, uh, the new covenant church here, uh, it's the it's the rebuilt kingdom of God. Again, they, uh, they were asking, are you going to restore the kingdom now to Israel? And Jesus says, you're going to go out. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't replace Old Testament Israel. It continues the kingdom of God from Old Testament times. The difference now is that it's not just in one location like it was in the Old Testament. Now it's everywhere. And it's not merely made up of Jews with a couple smattering of Gentiles. No, it's Jews and Gentiles together, growing together. As Paul describes it in Romans chapter 11, there's a tree. Abraham is like the roots. There's a tree that grows up, the nation of Israel. But over time, many become uh, unfaithful, and so God prunes the tree. cuts the leaves off. He cuts the branches off. And he takes other uh, branches from other trees, and he cuts those off, and he grafts them on to that tree. And they grow up into one, Jews and Gentiles together. There's one church, there's one covenant, there's one people of God, Uh, there's one kingdom of God, there's one king between Old and New Testaments. The church isn't a a replacement, the church isn't a parenthesis, the church isn't a temporary stopgap until the, the Lord raptures us out and then begins again with the Jews, no! The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles together across all tribes, languages, and peoples and nations. And so there must be, there must be 12 because there were 12 tribes that founded uh, the people of God in the Old Testament. So there must now be 12 apostles to express this new era in the people of God's existence. And so the, the apostles are like a foundation. Ephesians 2.20 again, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. How many foundations does the house of God have? It's one foundation. It's one foundation. Who, uh, who is that foundation? It's the apostles, right? With the prophets, Christ being like a cornerstone. In other words, the apostles, the apostolets, this group of apostles, They are uh, are a unique and unrepeatable thing in the existence, in the life and history of the church. The apostles were restricted to those who accompanied the eleven from the time of Jesus' baptism to the time of his ascension. And they actually witnessed the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. How many people living today lived with Jesus throughout his three years of ministry, and saw his resurrection. How many people today? Are you sure? People claim all the time that they're apostles. There's an entire international movement of churches now, the Apostolic Church. That says that the apostles have been restored, the church has been reborn, and we are going to see it spread across the entire world and take dominion over all peoples and tribes and languages and nations. And they've got act they call themselves apostles. They call themselves prophets. They say that they speak the word of God. And they say this is going to happen, and that's going to happen, and they they claim that these things are happening. They claim to have apostles. According to Peter, there's no one on earth today who's an apostle. You had to have accompanied the other 11 throughout Jesus' three years of ministry, his baptism till his... Ascension. He was baptized around the age of 30, and he ascended around the age of 33. And you had to have seen the resurrection so that you could be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Unless Benny Hinn is 2,000 years old, I don't, think he, I don't think he qualifies. Sorry to say. Let me just make one quick application of that before we move on of this principle of being governed by the word. We've got to be governed by the word. And that's what Peter's doing here. And, 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 I should, and I should say as well, you don't see Peter here saying anything like being the bishop of Rome. You don't see him saying anything like uh, the Roman Catholic Church says about Peter, that he is the vicar, the, the person in the place of Christ himself on earth, and that he speaks uh, from his seat Uh, ex cathedra he speaks infallible words and he is uh, without error no he makes he he, he leads the apostles to make their decision the the whole church in fact based on the words that God had already spoken there's no unwritten traditions here there's not Peter speaking as a pope as a bishop of Rome speaking infallibly new truth. He says nothing other than what God has already said in Scripture. And so he, he, they, us want to be governed by the word. And so we have to be convinced. We've got to be convinced of the importance of being a church that is governed by the scriptures and that happens in a well-ordered Reformed church. We have ministers. We have elders. We have deacons. We have officers, office bearers, we call them, who follow the word. So many well-meaning Christians today, so many brothers and sisters, think it's okay to be lone rangers. It's okay to worship on Sunday apart from any other Christian sitting on a surfboard apart from any other believer. It's okay to be a lone ranger. Or it's okay that, that I just have gathered some folks from my neighborhood and, and, and we're just going to do church. Well, what happens inevitably? And many of us have are the... Are the Or the uh, sad results of these kinds of movements. Somebody eventually is going to assert his or her influence, and that gathering, that quote unquote church, is is going to take on the same character as that charismatic leader. Unaccountable, apart from the word. We've got to be governed by the word, follow the word wherever it leads us, wherever it guides us, wherever it tells us to go. And so we need to pray in response to the fact that Christ is building his kingdom. We've got to be devoted to his word, and we've got to also, finally, notice here, they are surrendered to the Lord. Jesus Christ is building the kingdom. He's building a church from that little room. They're gathered there, and they respond just by being humble and being surrendered to him. They're praying for the Holy Spirit to come, as Jesus promised, and they're following the word to find a replacement, as God had already said in the Old Testament. So they gave themselves up to God completely, totally holy. We read in verse 26 their nomination of these these two men. Uh, Joseph, uh, also called Barsabbas, also called Justice. Uh, That's his Hebrew and then his his Latin name. Uh, And then Matthias. But how do they know which one of those two is going to replace Judas Iscariot? These are two godly men. And apparently they both had been with Jesus and with the other apostles throughout those three years. And apparently they saw the resurrection. Those are the qualifications Peter gives. So these are committed believers They've seen the Lord Jesus Christ arrested and crucified. They themselves have been persecuted. They themselves have been like prophets without honor in their own hometowns. And these are godly men, therefore. Well, how do they know which of these two? Why not take them both? How do they know? They cast lots for them. Casting lots was an ancient way to discern God's will uh today we might talk today about drawing straws right we you might take a uh, some some blades of grass and you kind of hide them behind your hand and they all look to be the same height and some person draws each one whoever has the longest one or the shortest one whichever one you determine for uh, ahead of time that person right that's god's will that's how they discern and make decisions in those days why that sounds strange that sounds odd If it's true, the Bible, the Old Testament said that there must be one to replace Judas, and if they are going to use this means of casting lots, I mean, why not wait for, for a sign in the heavens? Or why not wait for uh, a lightning to shoot down? Why not wait for, a, for the finger of God, like in the Old Testament, to write the name upon the wall? They draw lots. Because it's a way of showing that the decision comes from God, not from men. The decision comes not from human ingenuity, backroom wrangling like politicians. The decision comes from God and God alone. It wasn't that the eleven voted for the twelfth. No, this was a divine institution, they cast lots. And as the Proverbs said, as I mentioned at the beginning, Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but uh, but its every decision is from the Lord. They completely gave themselves up to God. And God replaced that 12th apostle. So the crucified, the risen, the ascended, the reigning king, our Lord Jesus Christ, was beginning to rebuild his kingdom on earth from all the shambles that it had become in the days of, say, Jeremiah, Lamentations, so forth. And they're meeting in a little living room. There's not much impressiveness about them. He was building his kingdom in a living room then. Is he here building his kingdom amongst us? If he's building this church as I trust you believe how should you and I respond? What do we want to be known for? If we want to be known for being a true expression of the kingdom the apostolic example is clear pray to the Lord he's the king, not you Follow the Lord's word. His words rule, not yours, not mine. Give yourself to him in every way. Follow not your own understanding. Follow after his. Pray, be governed by the words. Surrender yourself to Christ. Let's pray. Our great and our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning again. Uh, We ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit upon us that we would hear rightly your words, that you would write them upon our hearts. Give us uh, responsiveness, Lord. Give us uh, uh, your power to, uh, to listen, to obey, to follow, to do the things that you command. Because, Lord Jesus Christ, you've come for us. You've died for us. You've been raised for us. And it's through us that you desire to show forth your death and resurrection power to others. Help us to pray more. Help us, Lord, to give ourselves up to the word more, to surrender our wills more. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, help us now, we pray, as we come to the Lord's table. May it be for us the very sign and seal, the very encouragement of Christ's body and blood until he comes again. And as we come forward to receive it in faith, uh, Lord, would you assure us would you assure us, Lord, that you are amongst us this morning, uh, that you are building your kingdom here. Help us, Lord, to believe that. Help us to follow. Help us to be, Lord, obedient to your will. We ask it all in Christ's name and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Let's turn together in response uh, to 480 in our hymnal, that song book. 480, I have no other comfort, let's stand as we're able to stand and sing out to God.